great. Father, we um, are here to hear from you. So, Father, um, may everything we do here glorify you. As we go through Psalm 121, may your spirit give me the words that I need to say, and Lord, may your spirit touch the hearers. May none of us remain unchanged by what we hear. If that is conviction of sin, may we repent. If that is encouragement, may we be encouraged. So Father, work in the hearts of each one as only you can do. And we commit this time to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you've heard um, already many times, this week has been a hard week. It's been a joyful week in heaven as they have received two new glorified saints to join the ranks of praising God. But for those of us who remain down here, it's difficult, and especially for those uh, who are closest to the ones that they have lost. If you flip on the news, you're intentionally reminded of just how terrible the world is. Um, And yesterday, we remember 20 years ago um, that evil still exists in this world, that there is pain, uh, that there is suffering, that we truly do live in a broken world. Um, We live in the consequences of Genesis chapter 3, right? We live in a fallen world. And so I thought it was appropriate to come to Psalm 121 uh, this week and meditate up on it uh, for, for a time. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 121, and uh, we'll see what the Lord uh, tells us here and how we can apply it to our lives. The first thing that you'll notice when we come to Psalm 121, though, uh, is the title, right? And it says, Song of Ascents. Now, uh, This is one psalm in a group of psalms, all labeled Songs of Ascents. And um, what this is referring to is three times a year, uh, the Israelites had to come and present themselves to the Lord each year for three different festivals. You know, the the Israelites had all these ceremonies that they were required to do. And uh, in, uh, in Exodus, we find out in Exodus 34, chapter Uh, verses 23 through 24, that three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. If you keep on reading, you'll find out that that is the feast of Passover um, or also called the unleavened bread, which is uh, the week immediately following the Passover. Uh, You'll see the Feast of Weeks, which in the New Testament is called Pentecost. And then you'll see the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And each one of these feasts was meant to remind Israel of God's saving work uh, among them. Now, why, though, is this called a song of ascents? How many of you have been to, to Israel? Few of you, how many of you have seen pictures of Israel? <laughs> okay, good. Then, then we, can, uh, uh, we can all imagine it. So if you go to Israel or if you Google some pictures of uh, Israel, 
uh, and you notice in Jerusalem, where is Jerusalem situated? Up on the mountains, right? In the hill country of Judea. And so if you go through scripture, uh, it, you'll notice that whenever it talks about going to Jerusalem, you'll never find that it says we need to go down to Jerusalem. So even though you're in the, the north, if you're north of Israel, it won't say go down to Jerusalem as we would imagine. Like for us, we would say we need to go down to Dallas, right? Uh, but for them, no matter where you are in Israel, you're going to go up to Jerusalem. And you'll find that in the language. And the reason is because it's in the hill country. No matter where you come physically, you will always have to traverse upwards. And this is uh, important for a number of reasons, but uh, it also sets Jerusalem apart because you can see it from every direction. Psalm 87.1 says, On the holy mount stands the city he founded, right? So this is on a hilltop. So the songs of ascents take this um, into consideration. They're called songs of ascents because these would be the songs that would be sung as you are ascending to Jerusalem these three times in the year. Jerusalem is situated at about 2,700 feet. And so this is going to be a, a long journey. Think about the coastlands. They're at what level? What ele elevation? They're at sea level, right? So they're at zero. And so if you come from that side, you're going to have to go up uh, 2,700 feet. And then there's an, a route that comes down the Jordan River. Uh, it's called the uh, Rift Route. And uh, you're going to go down all the way close to the Dead Sea. And what's so special about the Dead Sea in terms of elevation? It's the lowest, right? And so if you take that route, which a lot of times they would take because people wouldn't want to go through uh, Samaria, in the New Testament at least, you would take that route and you'd have to climb from the lowest point on earth all the way up to 2,700 feet. So this is a tenuous, this is a hard journey. And these songs, these songs of ascents, there's a group of them in the Psalms, would be sung in connection with this journey three times a year. And so you have the title, Song of Ascents. Now what I want you to do as we turn to Psalm 21, I want you to notice some things as a general overview real quick first. Notice the pronouns in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord. But notice in 3 through 8, What's different there? All of a sudden, it's not my and I, but it's your, right? Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel, right? The Lord is your keeper, verse 5. Verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And so you see this shift from first-person pronouns to the second-person pronouns uh, in 3 through 8. So what does this imply? Well, it seems to imply that there is some kind of uh, antiphonal song going on, right? By antiphonal, I just mean that one person is singing something, and then someone else is going to join in and sing the same thing, right? We've most of us have been uh, within 
church circles for long enough time that we even have some of these things where the worship leader or pastor or someone will start reading something and then the congregation will join in, right? Uh, an example of this as well uh, in a more, well, less sacred realm is, uh, uh, well, my family and I, uh, we used to go hiking fairly often. And uh, we had these songs that we would memorize. And since we're from Texas, uh, the one that we memorized was The Legend of Pecos Bill. Have you all heard Pecos Bill? Know who Pecos Bill is? Well, he's the roughest, toughest critter west of the Alamo. So anyways, what we would do as we're hiking is if we get bored after a while, someone is going to start singing the first verse of the song, right? And what happens right after that hap- what happens right after you finish that first line? Everyone's going to join in, right? Because everyone knows the song, and we're all going to join in. It seems that that is what is going on here in this passage as well. And uh, we don't really know uh, who the person is in verses uh, 1 through 2 or who's speaking in verses 3 through 8. It doesn't really matter. But it seems to be that this song is going to be the pilgrims traveling uh, to Jerusalem. Someone will start off singing and then the others will join in. Another thing that you'll notice... um, is that verses 1 and 2 are a little bit shorter and contain not as fully developed theology as verses 3 through 8. And so the pilgrim who starts off singing in verses 1 and 2 will have his theology either developed or clarified or something like that as you get into verses 3 through 8. So now let's look at verse 1. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, there's a couple of options here. Um, When you come to, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Either he's lifting up his eyes to the hills in expectation or hope of of help or something like that. Um, Or he's looking up, simply recognizing what is present. He sees these hills, right? If you're coming from the coastlands, or if you're coming from the, the east of Jerusalem, you're going to be seeing hills. Um, and, and you see this phrase, I lift up my eyes, in both of those contexts. I think here it's best to see it mostly as just looking up in recognition of what the psalmist sees. Just a couple of examples of this idea is uh, using the same phrase, Genesis 18.2, uh, Abraham Right? He lifted up his eyes, it's the same phrase, and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So here he's you know, busy doing his, his work, and he looks up, and he sees someone. Judges 19, 17. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. Once again, he's busy about his work. He looks up, he sees someone, it's just recognition. Zechariah 2, 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Same thing. Last example, last example Daniel 8.3. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And so what we have here is this pilgrim who is going to Jerusalem. He's looking up at the hills, and he's recognizing what is there. 
he recognizes the hardships that are going to await him in the hills. So there's lots of hardships that come with a journey to Jerusalem, right? One, it's just a long journey. It's hard. You got to climb a lot. But then there's all the other uh, dangers as well. There are bandits. There are animals. There are all those sorts of things that can cause trouble uh, and uh, danger along the way. And so the pilgrim recognizes his plight. And so then, after recognition, he asks a reasonable question. Where does my help come from? If I have to face these hills and all the dangers that await me, where's my help coming from to get me through this? To get me to Jerusalem to present myself before Yahweh. And it's at this point that we know the pilgrim has some good theology. He answers his own question in verse 2. He says, My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. And so let me just plug a word of advice in here. I, I don't, many of us, I'm sure, have a high view of theology, of right thinking about God. Some of us may not. Some of us may think it's boring, uh, that it's useless, or, or something like that. Theology is important. The psalmist is confronted with a problem in his journey. This is a real situation where he is facing hills, and he asks the question, where does my help come from? If you don't have theology, you're going to be stuck asking that question. And you won't be able to get past it. You'll only be asking. But this psalmist, this pilgrim, this traveling pilgrim, knows good theology. He knows where his help comes from. He says, my help comes from the Lord or from Yahweh. Now, this is a good statement. The pilgrim knows where his help comes from. Basically, he knows the source of his help. And what we'll see is that this psalm is going to build and build and build. But right now, all we know is that the source of help comes from the Lord. There's no explicit mention here of the person or the content of the deliverance of the help. So basically, uh, as far as the pilgrim is concerned, God could, send, God could send an angel, a messenger. He could use providence or something. In all that, his help would be from the Lord. But we don't know the means or the person or, or something like that of the help. You can draw your own implications from it. Uh, but what we're going to see is that the psalm intentionally builds to a big reveal, and we'll get to that. But this is a good recognition. The pilgrim knows good theology and how to apply it to his life. Because what he does is he is going to tell us who this Lord is, right? He is the Lord who made heaven and earth. Two things to note here. First off, where does this take us back to? Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So just think about what the psalmist is doing. By saying the Lord who created heavens and earth, he's importing all of that theology from Genesis all the way up, and he says, this God, the one who made everything, this is the God from where my help comes from. That was a strange sentence. But he doesn't just say the Lord, he doesn't just say God, but there is content to this. 
specifically the God of Revelation, the God of the Bible, the God who created all things, the God who created the very hills that he's looking at. This is the God from where his help comes. Okay, so the second point here, though, is, and I'm going to introduce a word. Some of you may have already heard of it, um, but I want to introduce it because I'm going to be saying it a couple more times, and that is merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, a merism. And what a merism is, is you state the two extremes of something, okay? So heaven and earth. And what you're doing is you're implying everything else in between. So when it says God created the heavens and the earth, is that the only thing he created? Or is he saying he created everything in between as well, right? Um, an example of this is in English, we looked, uh, you know, I lost my glasses and I looked high and low for them. Well, did you forget to check the middle? No, right? You're looking everywhere, right? You checked high and low. So we have that same thing. But that's going to show up uh, several more times in the psalm, this idea of two extremes and everything else in between. It's a poetic or rhetorical device uh, that does that. But notice what this one does. This includes everything. God created all things, including those hills. And so this is helpful because when you face troubles, when you face problems in your life, what is your response? Do you ask where does your help come from? Or do you proceed further than that and answer it with good theology? Know that the Lord created all things, including the hills and everything in them. Now at this point, in verse 3, the speaker changes, right? Someone else, this could be a, a group of pilgrims or, or maybe one of the priests or, or something like that. But either way, we're going to have a group, probably, of people joining in to the song, and they are going to encourage this traveler. And they're going to be sharing even more startling theology. So we read in verse 3, he will not... And this is kind of, it may sound a little funny because it's my own translation, so bear with me. But he will not give your foot to slipping. Um, and I did that because uh, I wanted to bring this out. He will not give your foot to slipping, right? This one who created the heavens and the earth, he will not give your foot to slipping. So just imagine you're on this journey, right? It's a tough journey, got to climb a lot. So the imagery is perfect, right? He's not going to give your foot to slipping. He's not out to get you. God is not out to get those whom he has covenanted with. Notice it says, he will not slumber, this one who keeps you. So not only is he not out to get you, but he is also forever vigilant on the pilgrim's behalf. Notice that this is the one who keeps you personally. Now, once again, have we been introduced to the explicit mention uh, of who the guardian is? We haven't. This one who keeps you will do this. So, once again, we haven't been given a name or a title. You can draw some implications, but there's a big reveal coming. This one who keeps you uh, the word for uh, keeping, you can translate it in different ways, to care for, to be 
uh, on guard, to watch, to observe. And in the case of a human keeping commandments, it means obeying. And so it means you're giving careful attention to something. Uh, and the context of that can, can vary a little bit. Uh, but in this case, this is the one who guards you, the one who keeps you, the one who pays careful attention to you. So this is the one. Uh, you could even translate this, your guardian, your keeper. So he will not slumber. He doesn't fall asleep. And now we get to verse 4. Behold, he will neither sleep nor slumber, the one who keeps Israel. Now what I want you to notice is here in this verse, there is a fourfold emphasis on this. So everything about this verse is telling the reader or, or the listener or the singer, pay attention, pay attention. The first emphasis here is just simply behold, right? You don't say behold for nothing, right? Uh, you say behold when you're trying to get someone's attention. You say behold when there's something startling, uh, when there is something amazing, whatever it is, behold, right? So already we're highlighting something. The second thing is notice back in verse 3, it says he will not slumber. Now if you look in verse 4, it says he will neither sleep nor slumber. Is there really anything all that different between sleeping and slumbering? Not necessarily. They're, they're synonyms. But when you put the two together, it is highlighting it. It is emphasizing. Um, it, it is a double assertion of his vigilance. In case you didn't get it in verse 3, get it in verse 4. This guardian is vigilant on your behalf. The third emphasis here comes from the change of reference. Notice in verse 3, the one who keeps you. Verse 4, the one who keeps Israel, the guardian of Israel. So there's a couple reasons why this is emphatic. Because one, it takes a much more powerful being to protect an entire nation than it does to protect one person. The other thing is, this is the one who is in covenant relationship with Israel. There are also these, these covenantal implications as well. So you have an emphasis there. And then the fourth one doesn't come out in the English, but it's in, it's in the uh, Hebrew. Basically, you have a couple different ways of saying no or not uh, in, in Hebrew. We basically just have one word, no or not. Um, but Hebrew has a couple ways. And the less emphatic ways are in verse 3, right? He will not give your foot to uh, slipping. He will not slumber, right? So that's one way of negating it. But then the, more, the, the stronger version of that comes out in verse 4. So it doesn't come through in the English, but know that it is there. It changes to a more emphatic negation. So like I said, everything about this verse is saying, pay attention to verse 4. He's not going to sleep or slumber, this one who keeps Israel. He is vigilant on your behalf. And then in verse 5, after we have got your attention, then we have the big reveal of who this keeper is. You could have drawn some, uh, some implications, but now it's going to be explicit. Verse 5, Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade upon your right hand. So the big reveal is that the Lord himself, Yahweh himself, he is your keeper. It's not just like one of his angels. It's not just providence. It is God himself as your keeper. He is your protector. He is your guardian. 
<laughs> notice here uh, in verse 21, or, sorry, verse, uh, chapter 121 in uh, verses 3 and 4, right? There's no name given, right? He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. There's no name there. Verse 4, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, right? So there's no name given there. But then notice in verses 5 through 8, the Lord is your keeper. So Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. Verse 7, Yahweh will keep you from all evil. Verse 8, Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And so it goes from general to very specific. This God who has covenanted with Israel, this one is your guardian and your protection. We also see in verse 5 that he is the protection of your strength. Notice how it says, Yahweh is your shade upon your right hand. So this phrase, people take in different ways. I'll tell you um, what, what I think it is. Uh, shade can often be um, a metaphor for protection, right? You think about Jonah uh, when he was waiting for the condemnation of, of Nineveh and the sun was beaten down on him and what did the Lord provide? Right, a plant to give him shade. Um, and so you'll see this metaphor used uh, throughout scripture, especially in the Old Testament, uh, regarding uh, protection. And then you have to ask, okay, the shade upon your right hand. So right hand is often... Um, uh, a reference for, for one's strength, right? The Lord extended his right hand. It means he, it, he, he's extending his, his strength, his power, that sort of thing. Um, uh, we have the same thing in English, right? My right hand man, what does that mean? It's the one who gets things done, right? Uh, my power or whatever. So you put those couple of things together and it seems that the idea is the protection of your strength. This God he is the protector of your strength. And you can just imagine on a trip up 2,700 feet, possibly more, steep elevation, long journey, three times a year, you're going to need some protection of your strength. And we go on to verse 6. Because here we're going to see another merism, right? So notice, and you actually kind of see a couple of merisms within this, but uh, anyways... So, uh, by day, the sun will not strike you, nor the moon in the night. So, notice what's going on here. Um, and, and by day, the sun will not strike you, nor the moon in the night. So, there's a couple things going on there, right? Notice you've got the sun and the moon on this, this end here, and you've got, or sorry, you've got day and night on this end, and you've got sun and moon here in the middle. Uh, does anyone know what that's called? George has said it a few times. Chiasm, chiasm. So basically it's highlighting, it's just a poetic device, it's, it's highlighting the things that are there. Basically what it's saying is that no matter the category or the time of day of these, distress, these distresses, they're not going to harm you. His protection goes whatever time of day it is, day, night, doesn't matter doesn't matter category, whether it's from the sun or from the moon. The Lord is your keeper through the midst of it. Yahweh's protection is total. And uh, I'm not going to get into what does it mean for the moon to, to strike you uh, in the night. There's all sorts of questions about that. The sun we can kind of easily understand, right? It saps out the strength. Um, perhaps 
uh, nor the moon by night is anything uh, concerning dangers in the night. That's probably the best way to take that. Notice verse 7. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Many of you will have the translation life. Um, now, is this a promise that you're not going to experience pain, loss, or devastation in this life? It isn't. This is a much more significant protection that Yahweh provides. This is a protection that gets to the real evils of this world. You see, the, there are powers that are opposed to God and opposed to his people that want nothing more than the destruction of God's saints. God's protection includes this. Yahweh protects his people from evil, every evil, eternally. Notice how it says, he will keep your soul or your life. Um, this word nefesh, it can mean uh, soul or life, and interestingly enough, it can also mean throat or neck. Um, so I don't think he, it's saying that he's going to keep your neck. Um, but then there are a couple of options here as well. When he says he will keep your life or he will keep your soul, just reflect on the couple of options. Either uh, the psalmist is saying, you're never going to die physically. Uh, or it means something more significant, right? It means that somehow he's going to keep your soul even after death or in the midst of death. And I just want you to reflect on this. Sometimes, sometimes as you're reading the Bible, you can think, if you're not careful, uh, or, or other people outside of faith, that maybe the uh, biblical writers were really not as smart as, as you know, they were. And you just think, in the midst of a broken world where death is all around, do you really think that the psalmist is telling you, you're never going to die? No. So that means that's the other option that he will keep your soul, he will keep your life, even in the midst of death. This is remarkable, that Yahweh's protection extends beyond the grave. And, and not only that, that life is more than just this physical life. And so he has this in mind. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. And then verse 8. Yahweh will keep your, your going out, your goings out. It's kind of a plural, it's weird. But you're going out and you're coming in, right? This is another merism, right? You're, you're, when, whenever you leave the house, whenever you come in, all your dealings, whatever activities you have in life, and in this case, you think about the pilgrim going on his journey, he has departed his house, his, his you know, city, his village, whatever, and he's going to Jerusalem. And then eventually he's going to come on back. And the Lord's protection extends to him in his going out and his coming in. Both things and everything in between. The whole journey, the whole thing. Every aspect and every activity of the human life is depicted here in this merism. And then notice... The time frame. And I love this uh, phrase, from now even until forever. From now even until forever. His protection is from this very moment. It starts now. 
and it goes on eternally in perpetuity. It's ongoing and it's all-encompassing, this protection of Yahweh from now even until forever. Okay, but now the question really becomes, we've walked through the psalm, we've seen how God's protection extends to the Israelites and, and these pilgrims wandering, not wandering, uh, journeying to Jerusalem, right, and coming back. Okay, uh, raise a show of hands, who, who here is Jewish? Not me, right? So how in the world does this become relevant for you and I? We're not God's physical nation Israel, right? How can we apply this to us? How do we bridge this gap, right? This is for uh, those who were in a covenant relationship with Yahweh 3,000 years ago, just about. And the answer comes in a few places. The first one is found in Jeremiah 31 through 34. You see, God promised Israel that he would make a new covenant with them. One in which he would circumcise their hearts. One in which uh, he would give them his spirit so that they could obey him. So turn to Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through 34. And let's read this. Because this is very important. This also demonstrates that the Mosaic Covenant was never to be a permanent thing. Rather, God had plans to rectify the situation. But Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, so we are told that God is going to make a new covenant uh, with Israel. Now, the question is, though, doesn't it say that it's still with Israel? Right? I'm going to make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah in verse uh, 31. And then in verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So once again, last I checked, I'm not Jewish. But we have the answer also in the New Testament. We find out that the Lord um, inaugurated this covenant through his crucifixion. Luke 22, 20, right? He's in the upper room. And uh, he has just had sort of the Passover meal, uh, or in the midst of the Passover meal, really, uh, with his disciples the night before he's crucified. And in the midst of this uh, Passover meal, he says in verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And he says, that new covenant that was prophesied back in Jeremiah, that's the new covenant that I am inaugurating with my blood here. 
If you go to Galatians 3, 13 through 14, we find out how this is applied to Gentiles, which is all of us. Galatians 3, 13 through 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. As we are in Christ, we receive the blessings of Abraham. And the blessings of Abraham, right, that, that includes all that covenantal language. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Remember that you, and he's speaking to Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was us, right? We're Gentiles. We weren't part of the covenants. We didn't get the promises. But notice verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we see that by faith in Christ, we are able to receive the blessings of a covenant relationship with the Lord himself, with Yahweh. We're not Israel, but we get to enjoy the blessings of that covenant because we are in Christ through faith. And so what that means is the protection that we looked at in Psalm 121 is the protection that God offers to all people that he is in covenant with. You and I, if we are in Christ, if we have believed upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are united with him and we get to enjoy the protection of Psalm 121. It is for us. So, some concluding thoughts here. As we turn to the New Testament, go to Romans 8, 30 through 39. Right, we have the golden chain of salvation. It goes from predestination to justification all the way forward to glorification in the future. Right, and so basically you have this idea that the believer is safe in Christ. And then in 31 through 39, we'll see what are the ramifications of that truth? Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified, right? The whole thing, the whole chain. Verse 31, Paul, Paul is so good about giving us, um, uh, he, he asks questions and then answers them himself, which is helpful in following along. Given this great truth, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. We go back to Psalm 21. What did we read? He will not give your foot to the slipping. Rather, he has done everything on your behalf. What does Romans 5 tell us? He has demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Yahweh is your keeper and you've got Jesus, God himself, interceding on your behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Sounds kind of like the hills a little bit in Psalm 121. There's a lot of dangers going on that journey. Will any of that be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We haven't, here in this church and in the United States, we haven't touched the persecution that others have. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is because we are in union with Christ. When we place our faith in Christ, we are united with him. His life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. Psalm 121 is true for us. Let's close with a, um, a doxology here in Jude 24 through 25. So turn there with me. As we think about Yahweh's protection, this is a fitting uh, doxology. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Just think, what was the purpose of those Israelites going to Jerusalem? They were to present themselves before the Lord three times a year. And along the way, the Lord said, I'm not going to give your foot to stumbling. I'm not going to give your foot to slipping. Jude says, he's able to keep you from stumbling and to get you there, to present you before the Lord, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So let me conclude with this. When you are confronted by the hardships of life or even by your own sins, Run theology through your mind and let it change you. Do not allow your own fleshly thoughts to continue to wash over you and cause you to be of this world. We are Christians and we are bound for glory. We are stewards of the great king. We must live like that and we must think like that. So run truth through your mind constantly lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin Even in death, you are safe. Even in death, you are safe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chance to look into your word. We are thankful, Lord, that you are our God, that you have made a covenant with us, and you are faithful to those covenants. 
And Lord, we thank you that you are our keeper, that you are our guardian through life and through death. You are our keeper. You protect us from all the real evils of this world. We still struggle. We still have persecutions. We still have pain. And we still experience the death of others and one day our own death. But we know that you are our keeper through it. And we are safe from the real dangers in faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for all those who are not in Christ. There is nothing but danger awaiting them. Father, convict those who are not in Christ. May they turn from their own sin. May they recognize their own fallenness. May they recognize that they can do nothing. Nothing to deserve salvation. Nothing to earn their way. But we must empty ourselves. We must humble ourselves before you and ask for you to be merciful to us. Father, we pray that those who are not believers would repent from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ so that they too may enjoy the eternal protection of Yahweh himself. And now to you, church. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.